This morning we're going to be in John chapter 21, which is the last chapter in the Gospel of John, and the last time we saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and today we're going to look at a very interesting exchange between the risen Lord and his disciples over at Galilee. And this is in that period between the resurrection and the ascension into heaven. It was a 40-day period. We're not exactly sure what day this occurred on, but it is between that period. And this Jesus, this risen Lord, he's different than the tangible Jesus that the disciples got to touch and eat with and all the other things that they did together. Jesus seems to appear, he disappears, he reappears, and when he comes back, even though he wasn't privy or they didn't think he was privy to the conversation they had last week, he fills them in on what they talked about several days ago. So this is different for them. This is a, a difficult period for the disciples. It's, as we read it, you know, when I first started reading the scripture, I was confused because their emotions seem to be all over the place. Well, they believe, they don't believe, they kind of go back to what they're doing. But I look at it like this. It was a training period. The disciples were always being discipled. They were always being disciplined. They were always being trained. And I believe what Jesus was doing here was he was preparing them for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's relationship to believers is going to be different than the tangible Jesus that was there, the incarnation. Now, if you're a new believer, you might say, what is the Holy Spirit? I've heard of the Holy Spirit. Kind of mysterious to me. And you'll learn as you grow in the Lord. You'll learn as you read the Word. But for those of us who've been believers for a while, we understand this relationship with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit warns us, you know, don't do that or don't go there. Or we're praying about something and the Holy Spirit encourages us, comes alongside of us. But the Holy Spirit, we, I can't sit the Holy Spirit over on the steps there and, and look at him and have a conversation. It's not that type of relationship. So this is a really neat portion of scripture. It's indigenous only to John's gospel. And as we go through it, well, we should learn something for ourselves as well. We're going to look at six stages that we go through in our relationship with the Lord. And we'll see if we hit all the stages because the last three get to be a little bit difficult. So as we cover it, we'll start to look at it. We'll make application for our lives and see where, we, where we're at with those stages. So let's jump in. Verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which would have been James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. Then they went out and immediately got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. So the Sea of Tiberias. Well, that area was conquered so many times. It had three different names over history, and I'm sure other people named it other things. But basically we're talking about the Sea of Galilee, that particular body of water. So what did the disciples do? They go to Galilee, and they go back to what they were doing pre-Christ. Now, let's understand this. They weren't sitting there with their tackle box relaxing and, and their fishing rods, their Snoopy fishing pole, and going, bzzz, blink, bzzz. That wasn't what they were doing. They took nets. Um, they were looking for a catch, possibly going back to commerce. Now, they were partially obedient to the Lord because he said go to Galilee, but he didn't tell them to go fishing. Peter, an experienced fisherman, caught nothing. 
And that's the way God wanted it. He wanted to remind them that something was missing from their lives and that that was the Lord. And we may be professionals in an area. We may be good at something. And if we're Christians, you know what? Sometimes the Lord will also make us unfruitful as well. And I want to ask you this morning, is the Lord part of what you're doing in life right now? Is the Lord in the center of it? Have we gotten good at compartmentalizing the Lord? Well, Lord, I'm going to go do this this weekend, so can you just kind of hang out in the house for a while and just watch everything? On, when I come back on Monday morning, we'll, you know, we'll fellowship again. Is there something in your life that he has to get your attention regarding? Important questions. So the first stage we look at in how the Lord deals with us is he shows us the deficit. He shows us the deficiency. It's vacuous. It needs to be filled. Show me a believer who's unfulfilled, and I'll show you someone within a deficit with an available solution that the Lord wants to provide for them. Peter went back to what he knew, fishing. We may be comfortable. We may have comfort zones in our professional lives. Well, I'm just really good at this. In our social lives, maybe even this summer, perceived fun, plans, but the Lord's not part of it. My prayer is that if that's the case, that you find something missing as well because the Lord wants to fill that. You see, you see the Lord, you know, you go to the, the supermarket and there's a seasonal aisle, right? And in the late winter, you see rakes. You go to the season aisle in the late summer and you'll see snow shovels. The Lord's not in the seasonal aisle. Some people treat him like a rake or a shovel. Well, it's good for the winter when I have nothing going on, but the summer's coming. This is perfect timing because the weather from this point on is going to be beautiful. What are we going to do with our lives? Are we going to go out there without the Lord? Because we'll find that something is missing as well. Verse 4, But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. So the second stage is, the Lord gives us a solution. He shows us the deficit, he makes it obvious, and then he gives us the solution. And he's part of that solution. I like the way he addresses them. He calls them children. Now in that Greek word, it could have also meant boys. Boys, have you caught anything? You know, have you caught any fish, boys? And that's how he looks at us. I got to tell you that when I was a kid, when I was a little boy, my parents got divorced, and uh, I grew up without, my dad wasn't around that much. And there was something missing. There was a deficit in my life, in a, in even, not even in a spiritual sense. But then the Lord came into my life, and he filled that void. He filled that deficit. What's a blessing now is my father's very old, and I get to take care of him. The roles have kind of reversed, and I don't hold anything against him. He's, he's a sickly man. And... Uh, but the Lord filled that deficit. Be careful of allowing people to fill the deficits in your lives. Be very careful of that. Because that will make you unstable. The Lord's got to fill those holes. But it's almost as if the Lord was saying, Daddy's going to solve your dilemma, boys. Let me show you what to do here. 
Now in verse 6, Jesus repeats similar commands about casting the net. This should sound familiar. Because about three years prior, he did the same thing in the beginning when he told them about casting their nets. And the Lord often reminds us of things he's already taught us. You know, we're, in Italian, uh, the word was stunati. You know, we, we, we're a little dense as human beings. And I've got to tell you, I'm glad he's been repetitive with me because I needed it. And that's why he tells us in his word to continue with him. John 15, to abide, to remain, to stay. This is an ongoing process. I mean, I've read the Bible cover to cover. Every page in that book, more than once. Do I get to now close the book and put it aside and say, I've arrived, look at me, I read the Bible. I get a little pin on my shirt. It doesn't work that way. This is the living word. This is something that it's repetitious. And, and I could read a book so many times, and then when I go to study it, God reveals new things to me. Maybe a new situation is coming up in my personal life or in the church that he's preparing me for through a study of a certain book. That's why it's called the living word. It doesn't die. It always breathes life, new life into a situation. So Jesus needs to be repetitive with us. Verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. So Peter ditches his buddies. <laughs> Peter is so predictable. But let's look at the third stage here, is to, have, is to receive of the solution. Disciples have a deficit. Jesus provides the answer. Now, remember, we are uh, free moral agents. We get to make decisions. God has given us free will. They could have just hung out in the boat and said, hey, that was great advice. We're probably going to make a lot of money with this catch. Hey, get that other net, throw it in the same place. Oh, Jesus is on the shore. We, we've got time. You know, we'll eventually get to Jesus. No. G Peter makes a beeline for Jesus, and the rest of the di disciples start rowing to shore to get to him. The question is, in our lives, are we still fishing? Are we still in the boat? Come to me, Jesus says. He's rep repeated that many times in the scripture. I do want to read Matthew 11, 28 through 30. And there's just some scriptures that I love studying, I love preaching. I remember when I covered this, five people came forward to receive the Lord. If you're not familiar with it, when I read it to you, you'll see why. Jesus says, Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. You ever just feel like that? Man, life, work, family, problems, finances. You just get you just tired and you become heavy laden. But Jesus has come to me. I will give you more problems? No, I will give you rest. I got the solution. Jesus always has the solution. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There are many today that are struggling that don't have to. I can't read your minds. Some of you this morning are probably struggling, and you've walked into this church, and it took everything that you had to roll out of bed 
get a cup of coffee, put your clothes on, fix your hair, and just get in here. Listen to what Jesus says. He's got the solution for your problems. He wants to give you that rest. And only He can provide it. Not people, not money, not situations, but Jesus. Come to Him. So Peter, he puts on his outer garment, he girds himself, uh, and he jumps into the water. Peter was often jumping into the water for the Lord, wasn't he? <laughs> we see him do that before. But you know what I love about the disciples is the uniqueness. John is pensive, thoughtful, deliberate, deep. Peter, impetuous, impulsive, always spoke too soon. I might, not, I might have been Peter. <laughs> I might have been the one the Lord kept giving me a time out. And, oh, Joe, go in the corner, will you? <laughs> But just like us, they were different. They were unique. And God used them. And God used them and he gave them spiritual gifts. Look at Mary Magdalene. What a devoted soul she was to the Lord. He cast seven demons out of her. She never left his side. Look at Thomas. Thomas was, was uh, just difficult. After the resurrection, every disciple said, we all saw Jesus rise. Thomas said, well, I didn't and I'm not taking your word for it. When Jesus comes, I will stick my fingers in those wounds, and then I'll believe. However, when Thomas became a believer, Thomas was from Missouri, the show-me state, right? When Thomas became a believer, he literally went to the ends of the known world at the time, all the way to India, to minister to the Indian people for Jesus. So this guy, once he got it, you couldn't take it out of him, and he died a martyr's death. This morning, I just want to tell you, don't try to be somebody else. Don't look at somebody else and say, I wish I had their looks. I wish I had their friends. I wish I had, I wish I had. And we're going to get to that. Be yourself. Don't be anyone, but God made you unique for a reason. Something about even funerals. Why do we do funerals? Why are people so upset? Because God put so much uniqueness in that person that then when they passed, they're irreplaceable. Seven billion people now on the planet, and each person is unique. Be yourself. I want to encourage you with that this morning. Don't look to be somebody else. Verse 9. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. Now this is the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So this is the fourth stage. Commitment. Right? Commitment. Now, when we have a relationship with the Lord, we have fellowship with the Lord, and things start to change from here. He shares a meal with them. Now, in our culture, this doesn't really come out that well. You don't really understand the meaning of this. You know, you could have gone to Lancaster. You have a, they have these big eating places, and it's family style, and everybody's, you know, give me the coleslaw, give me the chicken legs, and you're, you're sitting at the table with like 12 strangers. In that culture, it wasn't like that. If you were to eat with somebody, you were sharing with them. 
You were communing with them. You were identifying with them. You had fellowship with them. There's a great significance here. And in addition, I love this. When we have a relationship with the Lord all over Scripture, He promises not only to meet our spiritual needs, but He met their physical needs, and He meets our emotional needs as well. I love that about Him. Now in verses 8 and 11, well, first thing Peter does is he swims to shore. Pretty good distance for, for swimming. And well, he was a fisherman, he probably knew how to swim pretty well. In addition to that, this net this, with this huge catch, Peter just comes and he just takes it and he drags it onto the land by himself according to the scripture. Now was he particularly strong or volant? Or was it something else? You see... Peter was also able to walk on water for a while until he started looking at himself and his circumstances. Well, there's water. I can't believe this. And he started to sink. Lord, save me. God is a loving God. He's an honest God. He's a truthful God. God doesn't ask us to do anything that he won't empower us to do. He doesn't say, come to me and you sink. And he goes, just kidding. That doesn't happen. Whatever God calls you to do in life, he will empower you to do. That is very clear. And this morning, if you're struggling with something that you believe the Lord is in, but you're, you're having difficulties, give it over to him. Because the Lord is not going to call you to anything that he's not also going to give you the equipment and the ability to do. There's a saying in Calvary where God guides, God provides. So, Jesus would just tell Peter to do things. Remember, when, when Peter stepped out of the boat, when they had that storm, and he saw Jesus on the water, and he says, Lord, if you ask me, if you command me to come to you, then I will. Peter wasn't just going to step out of the boat. He might have been impetuous, but he wasn't stupid. So he says to Jesus, if it's you, command me. Tell me that you want me to do this. And Jesus said, come on, let's go. Peter took one leg out. He took the other leg out, splash, and he's walking on water. And he could have gone all the way to the Lord had he not lost his faith. And I believe if the Lord is calling us to do something, he'll give us the equipment to do it. Verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Do you love me more than these? In other words, do you love me more than these disciples do? Now, before you say that's an odd question to ask, remember in Matthew 16, 33, before the crucifixion, he says, oh, they all leave you. I'll go to the death for you, Jesus. And what happened? He failed miserably. Oh, I'm, I'm backing myself into a corner here. You're saying to me, well, Pastor Joe, well, isn't Jesus rubbing salt in his wounds? That's an interesting expression because when you rub salt in a wound, an open wound, it stings like hell, but it disinfects the wound. 
Think about that in a spiritual sense. You see, a lot of modern Christian Christianity doesn't teach personal abasement in discipleship and repentance because why? It's unpopular. It's unpopular to our culture and ministries feel pressure from that and say, well, I'm not going to fill the church up if I teach what's opposite than what's out there. All these self-help books, you're great, love yourself more. I can't do that. We don't do that at Calvary Chapel. We preach what the truth is. It is unpopular. So some will look at Jesus when they read the entire scripture and say, that's not the Jesus I've heard of growing up all my life. Well, get in the word and see the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Peter denied Jesus three times, and here he affirms him three times. There was public sin on Peter's part. There was also public confession on Peter's part. Pretty heavy stuff here. Part of the forgiveness and restorative process is to acknowledge a former faulty path, confess, and decisively turn from it. Forgiveness without repentance hurts the person being forgiven because it opens them up to the same sin and dysfunction that they were at before. They just go back to the same slop. And that's not what we want. We want complete freedom. We want the chains to be, to be lifted from us. You see, Peter was a traitor, but Peter was also a liar. His sins were piling up. He said, three, I don't know the Lord. And he called cursing on himself. He didn't want to be identified with Jesus, so he, he sinned. He was a bad witness. He was a traitor, and he was a liar. However, Peter was transformed to become a pillar and a leader of the early church, but that came with a price. We have to look at the same thing in our lives as well. There may be something that's holding us back, that we haven't fully given up, that we haven't fully repented for. If God is going to use us in a mighty way, which I believe everyone in this room wants, we have to clean out our vessels of all the junk that's in there. And completely open it up because God isn't going to mix his spirit with our self-centeredness. It's not going to happen. I, just, I love this exchange. It's, it's powerful. It's emotional. There's a lot in here. I'm just going to go into a little bit on the Greek because there's so much to this. I don't want to make too much hay out of it. But the Lord asked Peter three times if he loved him. The first time he used agapao, which is a higher love, a, a divine love, a selfless love. And the last time, Jesus says phileis, phileo, which is more of a brotherly love or a fondness. So think about this. Peter, do you love me with that divine love? And Jesus said philo. He didn't say you know, agape. He didn't use that term. Because the cool thing about this is Peter wasn't presumptuous anymore. He wasn't saying, yeah, Lord, I could pao, man, that's me. Me and you, we're, you know, we're thick as thieves. He said philo. I can, only, I can only say this, Lord. I, I can't, you know all things. I can't tell you something that's not there. So the third time, Jesus asked him, Phileis. He, he dropped the, the love thing down, and Peter, yes, Philo. Isn't that neat? So Peter wasn't presumptuous anymore. He was now aware of his limitations. And I believe if we're going to be used of the Lord, we have to be aware of our limitations too. Because a lot of men and women have fallen in ministry because they weren't aware of their own limitations. And the Lord had to put them on the shelf. The second thing is he says, feed, feed my lambs, tend and shepherd. Um, and he goes from lambs to sheep. And that's people, right? That's the church. 
the ecclesia. Basically, Peter, if you truly love me, now I have something for you to do. You've got to do this for me now. Now, this brings us to the fifth stage. When we fellowship with the Lord, we open ourselves up to him instructing us in his purpose for our lives. We don't come to the cross and become Christians and say, hey, this is great, I'm going to heaven. Now, Lord, this is my itinerary for the next five years. Can you do me a favor, do something with this? What the Lord does is when we fellowship with him, we realize that prayer is having his will done in our lives, not us twisting his arm and making him do what we want him to do. Hey, this new faith is great. Look at me, I get to be a spoiled brat. That's not the Christian walk. A God-ordained purpose but he will do something in us that's way bigger than ourselves, anything we could ever dream of. The Lord wanted the disciples go, to go from being fishermen to shepherds. I want to read what Warren Wiersbe says about fishermen, and then we're going to move to shepherds, because it's a different occupation. And if you have to look at this spiritually, in his book, Be Transformed, he says, by the way, it is interesting that at least seven of the 12 disciples were probably fishermen. So we know some were, but others, there can be speculation. Why did Jesus call so many fishermen to follow him? For one thing, fishermen are courageous, and Jesus needs brave people to follow him. They are also dedicated to one thing and cannot easily be distracted. Fishermen do not quit. And he goes on to say, we are thinking, of course, of professional fishermen, not idle people on vacation. They know how to take orders, and they know how to work together. He kind of reiterates this with a little different nuances, page 144. He says, now we can understand why Jesus had so many fishermen in the disciple band. Fishermen know how to work. They have courage and faith and go out into the deep. They have much patience and persistence and will not quit. They know how to cooperate with one another, and they are skilled in using the equipment and the boat. What examples for us to follow as we seek to catch fish for Jesus Christ? Now, if you're not particularly courageous, don't worry. This isn't an elite club. God will give you that strength. Gideon was terrified. Gideon did not want to do what the Lord asked him to do. He was actually cowering uh, in the wine press when the Lord called him to battle. You mighty man of valor. Gideon was probably going... There's nobody behind me. Who are you talking to? Because he knew that wasn't him. God will equip you. So this is what happens. Fishermen, they catch. So, you know, hey, evangelism is great. Converts is great. But Jesus said to go make disciples. He didn't say to go make converts. So that's the first step. It isn't, hey, you know, big crusades, and you see a lot of these things. Well, what do you do with the people once they come to Christ? Oh, I'll never, I'll never see you again. No, there's discipleship. There's being involved. Now, that takes, that's difficult. If any of you have done it or had it done for you, last Sunday was great with Pastor Luis. Heather and I were difficult, man. <laughs> I mean, him, he and his wife would sometimes come over at 10, 30, 11 o'clock when we were in some intense fellowship. So discipleship means that you make a commitment to be in somebody's life through thick and thin. That's tough. That, that's tough. But that's what he wanted. He wanted them to be shepherds. Day in and day out, spiritual oversight. Verse 18. Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, speaking to Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you wherever you do not wish. 
This he spoke, glorifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now to have another one stretch out their hands was indicative, that expression in that time was indicative of having your arms and your hands stretched out to be fastened to the cross piece, the horizontal piece, the patabulum. They would fasten you to that. They would do it forcefully. You would carry that portion up the hill. The, uh, the hole would already be dug for the, the tall piece. They would attach them together, and they would raise you up, and you'd be crucified. So, but check this out. In death, Peter was going to glorify God. Now, tradition tells us that Peter, when his crucifiers went to take him, I, I don't know how he did this, because it would be like a horror show. It's bad enough being crucified, but... Peter said, I can't be crucified the way of my Lord. Will you please crucify me upside down? He asked them for that request, and they obliged them. And they raised them up upside down being crucified. That's amazing. Again, suffering, death, glorifying God. Oh, you won't hear that in the prosperity gospel. It's out there. See, our culture is ever searching for the fountain of youth. We have it, and it's free. And it's not an elite club. But it takes an act of the will to lay down your will to come to the cross. And here's a, whatever, whatever God does and whatever is perfect, Satan always makes a cheap imitation of and he makes imperfections. You know, we all seek, we want eternal life. Nobody wants to die and go into the ground and think that they're rotting in there. It's a horrible thought. This is the ideal paradigm the everlasting life that the Lord provides us. Now, I find this interesting because the world has their version and it's weird. And I've talked about this before. A lot of the youth are into this, the vampires. Well, there's, a, there's eternal life there, but it's very dark. It's very evil. There's, there's death involved. There's satanic activity involved. There's another one, zombies. We have a zombie culture, don't we? People glorify this whole zombie thing, right? But it's, the ideal paradigm is eternal life, not for our bodies to decay and get worse, but for them to be perfected so we can negotiate and traverse the universe and all of his creation. No more death, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain. Revelation 21 says, for the former things have passed away. 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, also, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Oh, he's going to get it. He's going to get it. <laughs> Daddy, Daddy, what about my brother? You know, he got more marbles than I got. Well, Peter now knows about his death. And he looks back at John and goes, well, what about him? Remember, they ran to the tomb together. It kind of was neat. You know, they had a camaraderie, but maybe a little bit of competition as well. I knew a guy years ago who was a believer who was always looking to see what other Christians had. And all of his friends knew that this was his M.O., Always looking, their possessions, they're this, they're that. And the uh, person ends up staying in that position. Again, I say to you, embrace who you are in Christ. Embrace what the Lord has for you and your gifts in Christ. Stop looking at other people. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And that's emphatic. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. 
Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So Jesus rebukes Peter again. (laughs) In other words, Peter, it's none of your business. Now I'm going to expand this. Let's look at this in a spiritual sense, and let's look at this in a material sense. It isn't any of our business what another person has or another person does or another person's ministry. They could have a bigger house, a better job, a nicer spouse, uh, different ministry, spiritually gifts. I mean, I personally don't care what other pastors are doing. This is the flock that I've been called to tent, and this is where my focus needs to be. Some pastors get caught up in this too. Numbers, the numbers game, how many people do we have, as if that means anything. Some of these uh, prosperity teachers have tens of thousands in stadiums. And you know what? They're not teaching the truth. But they're tickling the ears of their hearers. I'll tell you a funny story. Funny story about spiritual gifts. Um, <laughs> we, we set something up for our ushers. Uh, our, we have some good security downstairs. And not only do we have the teachers, but our ushers are at the long hallway and they watch what goes on in the classrooms. Uh, which is a good thing. So it's a second set of eyes, and when the teachers, if the kids have to go to the bathroom, whatever, uh, they help out. And, we have, and we're, we're non-discriminatory. We have a female usher, Teresa. She's awesome. And uh, we set this thing up because they would just sit there and maybe play with their phone or do something. But we set something up with a wireless headset so that they could hear the sermon. James is laughing. You know what I'm going to say. And... It's really great because they get to hear now the message on, on the headphones while they're down there just keeping an eye on the hallway. So uh, I, I get done with service a few Sundays ago, and I go out into the lobby, and as everybody's there, and Teresa comes up to me. I told her I was going to tell the story, and she's got tears in her eyes. She's laughing so hard. I said, Teresa, what's so funny? She goes, well, your, your mic pack feeds directly into our, our headsets, and she goes, and during worship, all we hear is you singing. I cringed. (laughs) And actually, Daryl said, we in the sound booth are sworn to secrecy. (laughs) See, I let the cat out of the bag. But I tell you what, as she was laughing, I started laughing, and we were hysterical in the hallway. It was the funniest thing. I can't sing. And as the senior pastor, if I ordered Pastor Paul to let me sing up here, he would quit. (laughs) And I'm just not taking singing lessons. I mean, I love to see that the worship team, they're, they're so good at their instruments and they're polished in their singing. It's beautiful. I don't have that gift, and from now on, I'm turning the pack off when worship is going on. Daryl was, I don't know, you, I think you did that to me on purpose back there. I don't know. Peter had a hard ministry. Peter needed to get his eyes off of other people. And brothers and sisters, we need to do the same thing. And that might convict some of us right now. Um, I know believers who started off with a bang, but because of looking at others, looking at what their neighbors had, their neighbors have this, so we got to get this and keep working and get all this stuff, that they, it, it kind of killed their um, desire for the Lord. It, it snuffed it out. Right? Stop looking at everyone else and serve the Lord. So the sixth stage is the hardest. The sixth stage, if we get that far, if we open ourselves to get that far, this is where we expect the Lord to discipline us. Now, nobody likes discipline. As Americans, we're free spirits. We don't like discipline. 
But this is the sixth stage, whether we like it or not. If the Lord is going to put his stamp of approval on us, he's going to have to correct us at times. A lot of people were enamored with what Pastor Luis had to say last Sunday, but I got to tell you, I had some contemporaries, and me and a few other guys were being discipled by Luis, and some of them dropped out and quit, and frankly got mad at him because he said things that hurt their fragile egos. I stuck with it because he was a good father, he was a good Christian, right? he was a good husband, and I wanted that. And I, w- I was going to go through the furnace to get that, because I wasn't any of those things. So we, we've got to be disciplined at times. We need that. Proverbs 27.6, right? Wounds of a friend are faithful, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Your true friends will wound you at times. They will hurt your feelings. Something we need to get used to. In verse 22, he says this a second time to Peter, and this is emphatic. He says, Su akoluse moi. Peter, you follow me. Stop looking at John. The second time he had to rebuke him. Get your eyes off of him. Now, as we close, it says, Jesus says, If I will that he remain till I come, what is it that to you? And then a saying went out. Basically, the apostle John died of old age. The other disciples uh, were martyred. And what happened was Jesus came as uh, John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos, and he came to him to give him the revelation, which we get the last book of the Bible the revealing of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, John did see the coming of the Lord, but not in the way that everybody else expected. Even those in the Apostle Paul's day, they expected Jesus is going to come back any day now. Well, it's been a long time and he didn't come back yet. 24. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. So Jesus worked nonstop. He had to, he, he did pray. He needed to stop for prayer. He needed to stop to sleep, to eat, to rest. But for the most part, for three plus years, he taught, he raised the dead, he did miracles. And these gospels, according to this, they're not exhaustive. There's so much more that's involved that Jesus did. Just in closing, and I always try to do this, what have we learned from this gospel? I think we've almost, for the better part of a year, we've covered John's gospel, which is powerful. People read a few verses of this gospel and they just get saved. So my question this morning, brothers and sisters, what have we learned? What has God shown us through this book? It's not just some fanciful historical account, it's real. It's spiritual. It's to, to change us. To the unbeliever, it's to regenerate the soul, the spirit. To the believer, it's to mature and grow and to learn something from it. We're at a crossroads. We're done with this. The next book I'm going to cover is actually Habakkuk in the Old Testament. We'll talk next Sunday why, and then I'm going to cover Hebrews after that. I guess my question is, what are you going to do with this information? What are we going to do with it? How is it going to change our lives? How is it going to transform us? Has it transformed us? My prayer is that, that we all pray about what we've learned, even if we've got bits and pieces of it. We can get the rest of it on the website, read it for ourselves. My prayer is that we read it and see what the Lord will do with our lives. You know, don't, don't waste it. This is a treasure. Let it transform you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we 
Thank you for your word as always. It's a blessing to us. We just pray, Lord, as, you know, as the disciples, he, he, Jesus trained them and transitioned them to receive the Holy Spirit. Lord, that...